we are in the third week, we're in the third week of a five-part uh, series um, that we're calling uh, Pray and Go Together. Um, and the, the, through the month of January, we are, we are engaged in a time of, of intentional prayer, um, not just in this congregation, but with Baptists from around the state. An intentional time of, of prayer and, and preparation um, as, as we pray for those folks who are um, those um, unreached people groups around the world. Um, so these are, are, are groups of people, ethnic groups, people groups, um, the gospel has never has never been proclaimed among those people. And so we're praying for those unreached people groups, but then we're also praying for underreached locations in our own state. There are these geographic pockets, somewhere between a mile to three miles in radius, these geographic pockets in which there's a disproportionately high number of people who are lost and who don't know Jesus. A few weeks ago, uh, um, my friend Mike was here, uh, Dr. Bortz, and, and he uh, spoke, and, and he talked about the different, the different context for going out and, and, and taking the gospel to people. But he, he brought some numbers, and I hope those numbers have stuck with you, but in case those numbers haven't stuck with you, you're going to hear me repeat them a lot um, in the days and months ahead. In fact, I have all of these numbers printed out and on the wall in my office across from my desk so that every day when I look up, I see what the situation is. And what the situation is, there are 7 billion people in this world who don't know Jesus. 7 billion people. There are 246,975,000 people in the United States that don't know Jesus. There are 5,800,000 right here in North Carolina. And within three miles of the front door of this building, there are 3,500 people who don't know Jesus. 3,500 people within three miles of you right now. If you're in the room, within three miles of you. And if you're within a couple of miles of the church, the numbers, the numbers hold actually sort of sort of out beyond three miles as well. And so, as we pray and go, we are praying and going because there are seven billion people in the world who need Jesus. Because, because there are 247 million people in the United States who need Jesus. Because there are 5.8 million people in the state who need Jesus, because there are 3,500 people. 3,500 people that were within easy walking distance for everyone except me right now who don't know Jesus. So we've been, so, so, the, so that's what we're doing this, to kick off this year, to, to bring some clarity to our year, some clarity to our mission and to God's mission. And so it's one of the things that we're doing this January is we're sort of going through and we're looking at some significant chunks and some significant passages in the Gospel of John. Some, some places in the Gospel of John in which um, uh, Jesus um, and the Gospel writer John is showing us what it is to pray and go. What the ministry of Jesus looks like. 
And so the first week, we, we asked this question, what's your story, right? That's, that's a question we often ask people when, when we first get to know them. What's, what's your story? It's the question that was asked of John the Baptist as he was preparing the way for Jesus. They came to him and they said, what's your story? And I challenged us that like John, that when someone asks us what our story is, we need to point to Jesus. That our story is the story of Jesus. And the story of the gospel and the story of redemption. And last week, we looked at this at this, this idea that Jesus says that he's the bread of life. That those of us who, who eat of him will never be hungry. That we will be satisfied. That there are these things and the satisfaction that we need that we can only find in, in Jesus. And this week we're looking at the story of Lazarus. The story of Lazarus. You may have caught that already. I've made several mentions and references already this morning to the story of Lazarus. And so we're in, we're in John, we're in the 11th chapter of John, and we're going to read the story of Lazarus. And it's, it's a little long, it's a little long, but I am going to ask you if you'll stand with me as we read the Word of God together. And if you or I need to sit down through this, feel free. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day, Jesus answered. If anyone walks through the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. And then Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. 
having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench, because he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always are hearing me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. And after this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound, hand and foot, with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. This is the word of God. Read it. Believe it and live it. Let us pray. Dear gracious God, I pray this morning that your word would have comfort for us. That your word would have truth for us. That your word would have love for us. And that your word would have life for us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. Lord, you're too late. I don't know about you. But that's not something that I would say to someone who I thought was the Messiah. Lord, you're too late. I kind of want Jesus here to say, a Messiah is never late. He arrives precisely when he means to. But Jesus isn't Gandalf. See, Mary and Martha are dealing with with a tragedy, right? They're dealing with the death of their brother, and so they cry out, Where were you? Where were you? Have you you ever said something like that? I know I've said something like that. Where were you? By the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. But Christ is never too late. 
we read this story, as we work our way through this story, what we see is we see Jesus sort of moving through this broken situation. He displays four things. He displays his sovereign love. He displays his truth. He displays his tears. And he displays his, his power. And as we see that these are the things that Jesus displays, we must ask ourselves a question. What do we need when we're grieving? What do we need when we are suffering? Well, we need to be assured of his love and his sovereignty. We need to be assured of of his truth. We need to hear his truth. We need his tears to know that that he cares. And we need his resurrection. His power in his life. And we we see all of that here in this passage. See, in chapter 10, Jesus has proclaimed that he is the good shepherd. And in chapter 11, Jesus shows that he's the good shepherd. This is the, this raising of Lazarus is the seventh sign that's in John. We talked some about those signs last week. There are these seven miracles that Jesus uh, does over the course of, of, uh, of the book of John. There's sort of, they're sort of seven uh, sermons of action in which Jesus is showing who he is. And this one, this is sort of, this is sort of the ultimate sign, the seventh one. This is the, this is the capstone. What's interesting here is that both, both the first sign and the last sign sign are done in private. So the others are part of Jesus' public ministry. But the first sign, which is at the wedding feast at Cana, when Jesus' mother applies a little pressure and says, all right, boy, it's time, turns water into wine. And here, here in the last one, you see a, this last sign, the seventh sign happens again in a, in a private moment. Not at a wedding, but a funeral. Not in a time of joy, but in a time of grieving. This this story is sort of divided into four scenes, four vignettes. They're four distinct chunks of action. And so we're going to look at those those chunks of action. The first one of those, the first scene, is Jesus' dialogue with his disciples. And we see this in in verses 1 through 16. And what we know from the end of chapter 10 is that Jesus is across the Jordan. He's sort of in a wilderness region. He's not terribly far, probably, from where John the Baptist was when John the Baptist was doing the whole baptizing thing. Across the Jordan. That's where he is when he gets the news. So he's, so he's out. He's removed. And so we're introduced to, this, to these characters, this family, these three siblings, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Now, it's the first time we've seen them in John, but we've actually met Martha and Mary in Luke. You remember the story of Martha and Mary in, in Luke. And, and, and so we have this group, and we now know a little bit more about them. And there's this, this family group that, 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 that is, seems to be very closely connected to Jesus' ministry. And, and a significant uh, part of it. Bethany is on the east side of the Mount of Olives from, from Jerusalem. So it's on the east, east side. And, 
and close to, to, to Bethany um, in the 1800s, we found an ossuary, which is a, a container for bones, and it had the names Mary, Martha, and Lazarus on it. Now, we don't know that this is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus from this story. It may be. What we do know is that the current name for Bethany, and I am going to butcher this, and anyone who speaks Arabic either in the room or at home, I apologize. But the current name for Bethany is El Azria. El Azria. Which is the place of Lazarus. And so we have this family, this family that, that obviously Jesus loves. We, it's told to us here that he loves them. In fact, that's what they do, right? When they send a message to Jesus, they say, the one whom you love is sick. Jesus loves his followers. He loves Lazarus. So, so what's the cause of Jesus' delay? Well, it's not that he doesn't love Lazarus, right? We've been told he loves Lazarus. It doesn't mean that Jesus is indifferent or callous or capricious. In verse 4, Jesus tells us that the illness doesn't lead to death. Now, this doesn't mean that Lazarus won't die from the sickness. It means that he won't ultimately die. The, the death will lead to a resurrection and to the glory of, of God. See, see, God's glory does not always involve sparing us from difficulties and death. Oh man, I wish that it did. Do I, do I wish that it did? But sin has entered into the world. And there are consequences to sin. And that doesn't mean that when something bad happens to you, it's because something happens, is happening to you because you sinned. It means that the world is broken. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. And I think we all know that, right? We intuitively know that. And not just believers. I think, I think non-believers know that. Most people know that there's something wrong. So Jesus waits. I want to note something. Jesus, Jesus waits a couple of days, and then he goes. When he gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. So if Jesus had left, as soon as he got the message, Lazarus would still have been dead for two days. So when they say, if you had come, well, not when they sent word. There was this idea at the time um, that you weren't dead dead until after three days. In the first three days, there was this, there was this rabbinical idea um, that existed that your soul was still sort of present and that you could come back. Now, if we think about it, that sort of makes sense, right? Because their medicine wasn't super great. And so somebody could go into a coma and their body could heal and they could come back. But after 
after about three days, with the medical technology they had at the time, that's not going to be the case. And so after three days, you were, you were dead dead. You weren't mostly dead or kind of dead. You were dead dead. Lazarus here is, is not the character from, from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I'm not dead yet. He's dead. He's dead dead. There was no doubt that Jesus, that, that Lazarus was dead. Now, why is that important? Why is that important here? Because if Jesus had come after two days and raised Lazarus from the dead, there would be people who would be able to point and say, well, he wasn't dead yet. He wasn't dead dead. He was only, he was only mostly dead. You're not the Son of God. You're just Miracle Max. Princess Bride. Jesus is, is showing his glory. Why is he showing his glory? He's showing his glory because he loves Lazarus. Because he loves Mary and Martha. He wants them to see and experience his glory. His delay is not a, a delay of callousness. His delay is not a delay of indifference. His delay is a delay of love, a delay of purpose. You know, we don't always have all the answers um, about the Lord's delays, do we? About the way things, the way things work. We, we don't have those answers, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. And so what do we have to do when, when we don't know and when we're crying out and when we're saying, Lord, where were you? Part of what we have to do is trust in his sovereign love. Trust in the promise that nothing, that not death or life, nor angels nor principalities, sickness, death, nakedness, hunger, thirst, nothing in all the earth will separate us from the love of God. Don't base your assurance of his love on your present circumstances. Let me say that again. Don't base your assurance of his love on your present circumstances. Because everything that Jesus does in this story, everything that God does in the world, is rooted in two things, his sovereignty and his love. Also, the Lord doesn't always answer prayers as expected, does he? Doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It just means he sees something different than what you see. So Jesus decides that he's going to go ahead and go on in to Judea. And, and I love this little bit, and we're not going to spend much time here, but I love this little bit where basically the disciples are like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? Do you not remember they just tried to kill you, and now you want to go back? And there's this whole exchange with Thomas, and that's, I mean, that is an, its own thing that we could spend an hour or more talking about, so we're not going to. But the best part is when Thomas says, okay, well, well, let's go with him. If he's going to get killed, we're going to get killed with him. I mean, the disciples are Jesus' ride or die, right? Like, they could have stayed out there. but like, nope, if you are dead set on going into Judea and getting stoned, I guess we're going with you. 
And so as they, as they come, as, as, they, as, as they approach, Jesus finds Martha, and Martha runs out to Jesus. And this is the second, this is the second scene. And Martha runs out to Jesus. She wants to know, where were you? Why were you not here? I, she's, she has confidence in Jesus, right? Because Jesus asks her. And she says, she, you know, that she's got confidence. She knows, she knows that he could have done something about it. But she doesn't understand why he didn't come and do something. And I want to note something. Sometimes we have this idea, and I think I know where it comes from, but sometimes we're told, like, that we don't need to question God. Some, you know, sometimes we're told that, that we can just, you know, just, just, just trust, and that's good enough, and you don't have to, to question. But I want to note something here. Martha runs out to him, comes up to him, and she is fussing at Jesus. Where were you? I know you. I know what you can do. You could have done something about it, and you weren't here. Now, how does Jesus respond? He doesn't respond by saying, Oh, Martha, you don't have enough faith. He doesn't fuss back. He just sort of understands and knows where it's coming from and, and turns it back and promises her that everything is going to be okay. One of the great gifts from God, obviously, is his word. But within his word, I think one of the great gifts for us that, that many of us don't use as well as we should is the book of Psalms. Because the Psalms is full of this. The Psalms is full of the psalmist sitting down and saying, Where were you? I'm angry at you, God. You didn't, you aren't living up to your end of this bargain that I thought that we made. What's going on? And God includes it in his, in his word. It's okay. It's okay when the, when the tragedy strikes and, and when the illness comes, when the, when, when the, when the, the death comes, when you lose your job, when your spouse walks out on you, it's okay to cry out to God and say, where are you? Because when you do that, you are joining a long list of saints that have come before you that have asked the same question, that have wrestled with the same problems, and that have heard the same response. I am the Son of God. Do you believe? So our doubt comes not from asking the question. Our doubt would come in when we seek to answer that question. Do you believe? It's the question that he asks of Martha. Do you believe? And she says, yes. When God asks you the question, when you bring it to God, when you run out and you, and you bring it all to him, and he comes back with his truth, because that's what Jesus does here. He responds to Martha's question with the truth of who he is. And he asks that question, do you believe? See, Jesus is taking Martha's thought away from sort of a general belief in a general resurrection. You know, he says, he says you know, that Lazarus is going to come back, and she says yes. 
because she's a, a part of a group of Jewish believers in the first century who believe in this, this sort of bodily resurrection, this general resurrection. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what I'm about to do. And so he moves her belief from the sort of general belief into a personal belief in him as the only one who can do it. Last week we heard Jesus is the bread, but what? He also gives the bread. Jesus gives the resurrection, but he is the resurrection. I am, he says here, the resurrection and the life. There is neither resurrection nor eternal life outside of him. This is the truth of who Jesus is. When you're dealing with, with grief and pain, it's easy to doubt Jesus' truth. It's easy to doubt Jesus' truth. And I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that many of you here and many of you at home have at some point doubted Jesus' truth. In the midst of pain, in the midst of grief, it's easy to doubt. But when that happens, don't lose confidence in him. Go back to the word and remind yourself of his truth. We need Jesus' God's sovereign love and we need God's truth. And so now we come to scene three. And this is, this is the scene, this is the time when, when, when Jesus grieves with Mary. Where This is in verses 28 to 37. And so, so he's come out with Martha. And so if you remember, if you remember the story in Luke, let's talk a little bit, real briefly, about who these sisters are. Martha is the eminently practical one, right? Martha's the one that in Luke, when we get the story, Jesus is in their house, Jesus is teaching, and Martha is going all around making sure that everybody's iced tea glass is filled, that all of the canapes are out, that everything's being taken care of, that the bathroom is clean, that there's a fresh roll of toilet paper, that the, 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 little, the little towels, you know, the ones you only put out for the special guests, that they're out, that no one's using the soap that you're not supposed to use. You're using, you're using not using the good soap, they're using the, the, the real soap. That's Martha. And in that story, in Luke, where's Mary? Mary is at the feet of Jesus. And so Martha fusses at Mary, right? She's like, basically, come and help me. This is your house, too. And so in this story, we see, we see Martha is still kind of that eminently practical one. Like, Jesus is coming, she hears Jesus is coming, she gets up and she meets him. And where do we find Mary? We find Mary sitting at home. Sitting at home, mourning. We get the impression here that, that, because it talks about her staying at home and being in private and, and Jesus hearing that she's in private and Jesus going to her, that, that, that there's probably, she probably wants a private conversation with Jesus. Don't you sometimes want a private conversation with Jesus? But what happens? Everybody gets up and goes with her. Little woman. Now, we know something here. We know that, that this family is probably pretty, pretty prominent because we talked about like, everybody coming in and mourning with them, and that, and that wasn't just, just, that wouldn't happen for just anybody. 
And so we know that some of those folks are here, but what we also know from the time period is we know that people, particularly people of the sort of prominence and wealth that this family seems to have, and we also know that they're probably pretty wealthy because they support Jesus' ministry, because Mary provides this very expensive perfume to anoint Jesus with, that, that families of this sort of prominence and wealth would hire mourners. There were professional mourners who would, who, would, who would mourn. Until relatively recently, even in, even in places like Ireland, this was a thing. You had the village keener, and when someone died, she would come to the wake and she would keen. Wail, mourn. This is, this is a thing. We see it, it's talked about in, in, the, in the Mishnah, in some of the, the non-biblical, extra-biblical, early rabbinical writings. And so what we need to know is that while there are some real tears here, Mary's tears are real and there are real mourners, there are also some professional tears. And so their job is basically to follow the family around and, and mourn and, and keen and wail, and it just, to me, sounds awful. I don't want someone following me around doing that stuff. I understand why Martha gets up and leaves. But they follow Mary out. They follow Mary out. And when we see this, and when we see the scene, the scene's coming toward Jesus. And what we see is, is the scripture says that he's deeply moved in his spirit, right? That's what we read. He's deeply moved. But here's the problem. That's not right. If you have the CSB, I know the CSB has a footnote. If you look down on the footnote, the footnote will say, or angry. And we've done this weird thing in, in English translations where we've said that this means deeply moved, and we, we like that, right? Because that sounds more polite. Because that sounds more respectable. But, but, the, but the word here is anger. He, he quakes with rage. Okay, the word, the word in, in Greek is embrimaiomai. That's a series of letters that we don't normally stick together in English. Embrimaiomai. Naomai. And, and when we look in non-biblical Greek from the time period, right? Sometimes that's how we've got to do. Sometimes a word's only found a couple of times in Scripture, and so we have to look at other Greek to sort of figure out what that word means. And in extra-biblical Greek, what it most commonly refers to is the snorting of a horse. You know that snort, right? I won't try and replicate it because you don't need you don't need that this morning. But that 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 snort from a horse. And in extra biblical Greek, when it's applied to human beings, it means anger or outrage or, or sort of emotional indignation. This word occurs, it occurs twice in this chapter and then three other times. Once in Matthew and twice in Mark. And each time, it, we talk about that he was deeply moved in his spirit. He's not deeply moved in his spirit. He's angry. He's snorting. What's Jesus angry at? There are a couple of different options here, right? Maybe Jesus is angry at the hypocrisy of the mourners. We know that the hypocrisy was something that Jesus didn't have a lot of patience for, Right? So maybe he's seeing the hypocrisy of these paid mourners, and, and that is angry. Or, or maybe he's angry at the unbelief, right? We've just come off of this thing where he's asking Martha if she believes. So maybe he's angry at the unbelief 
of the crowd. Or maybe Jesus is moved by their grief and is expressing anger at sin and sickness and death. And I think that probably all three of them are at play, but I think that last one is what it's really about. Jesus is is angry at the effects of sin and death and the grief that it causes. See, Jesus' whole purpose is to come to reverse the curse, to come to set things right. He's come to defeat his enemy of death through his own death and resurrection. And so when confronted with this scene of mourning, of this presentation of the brokenness of the world, he gets angry. You know that feeling, right? Because you've walked out of a hospital room at some point and said, I hate cancer. You know that feeling because at some point you've, you've gone to a funeral or you've read an obituary in the newspaper and you, you say, I, I hate addiction. I, I hate depression and mental illness and what it causes people to do. A few weeks ago, I, I lost a friend. Some of you may have known him, Talmadge Killens, here in town. Very unexpectedly, Talmadge passed away. And there came a time where I just had to stand in the bathroom and scream. Because I was angry. Because the world as it is is not the way the world's supposed to be. Because Talmud shouldn't be fine on Tuesday night and dead on Thursday. When Jesus reaches the tomb, he, he weeps. He weeps. And I've always, this has always struck me. Maybe it strikes you. He weeps. Now, he knows that in 10 minutes, everybody's going to be excited and dancing up and down and, oh, my God, you brought him back from the dead. Right? He knows that's coming. He knows he's got the power to do it. He knows when he leaves and crosses the Jordan and heads to Bethany, Jesus knows how this ends. And yet, on the way to the tomb, he weeps. He doesn't smirk and say, <laughs> Just you wait and see what I got up my sleeve. He weeps because his love is perfect. Because he's the wonderful counselor. He weeps with his friends. Because he weeps with those who weep. He knows what's coming. He knows the joy. He knows the resurrection. He knows what's just a few minutes away. But he weeps. Because when we're suffering, we need a Savior who's both loving and sovereign. 
because we need a Savior who will speak truth. And because we need a Savior who will shed tears with us. We need the tears of Jesus, not just the truth of Jesus. We need the truth of Jesus, but we need the tears of Jesus too. And we need to be sure that when we're going out into the world, that we're taking both the truth of Jesus and the tears of Jesus. There are too many people who think that the way to take the gospel to the world is to stand on a podium and angrily beat people over the head with the truth of Jesus. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you, the overwhelming majority of people don't need you to beat them around the head with the truth. They need you to sit with them and weep with them and bring the tears of Jesus. The truth, too. The truth is important. But the tears, too. We get to this fourth scene, which is Jesus actually raising Lazarus from the dead. Right here in verse 38, we see again that he's deeply troubled. He's, he's, he's snorting at death and sin. The furious love of Jesus is on display in front of this tomb with the stone rolled in front of it. I want you to listen carefully to the language that's used here. The tomb with the stone rolled in front of it. Does that sound familiar? Man, I love Martha. I think I love Martha because I love my mother-in-law. And my mother-in-law is definitely a Martha. Because, because my mother-in-law would absolutely be the person, as we're standing there at the tomb, as she said, I absolutely believe in you. I absolutely believe that you have the power to raise her from the dead. I absolutely believe that you're the resurrection and the life. My mother-in-law is still the one that would say, but he's been dead for four days, and it probably stinks. Who brought the Febreze? Who brought the Perel? Remember the old King James? He stinketh. But what Jesus is saying is, he's like, look, no, 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 no. It's been four days. And yeah, you're right, he stinks. But the glory of God is about to be on display. The glory of God is about to be on display. And so he tells them to remove the stone. Just like in just a few weeks, he's going to tell the angels to remove the stone from his own tomb. He tells them, he says, remove the stone. And then he prays to God, to the Father. And listen, li listen to the prayer. Listen to what he says. First of all, he, he, he addresses the Father. And then he thanks the Father ahead of time. He says, I thank you that you have heard me. Ain't said nothing yet. I thank you that you have heard me. And I thank you that you have made me say these things in front of all of these people. So that your, your glory will be on display. This prayer shows the people who were there, the intimacy that he has with the Father. And then in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
And then we get probably one of the funniest scenes in all of Scripture. And if I hurt myself doing this, you can laugh at me. This is the scene that we get. Man, I mean, I mean, he's wrapped. Ow, that really hurt. Okay. He's wrapped up. His hands and his feet are bound. The cloths over his face. I mean, I mean, think about it. I mean, this is a Scooby-Doo cartoon. He's jumping out of the tomb. And then Jesus has to tell him, well, unwrap him. This is a funny scene. When Jesus is crucified and buried, he's laid in a tomb, carved out of the rock. A stone is rolled in front of him. Jesus' body is wrapped in, just like Lazarus's, in strips of linen. A cloth is placed over his face. And on the morning of his resurrection, Jesus isn't jumping around waiting for somebody to unwrap him. Because the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus are both resurrections, but they're they're different. Lazarus' resurrection is a resurrection of the mortal body. Jesus' resurrection was a resurrection of the immortal body. It's still a bodily resurrection. But it's a body that's no longer bound by strips of linen, and by face cloths, and by sin, and by death. Just as the resurrection that is coming for all of us, the bodily resurrection that comes, will not be a resurrection of the mortal flesh. It will not be a resurrection of this corruptible body. No, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that it will be a resurrection to incorruptibility. It will be a resurrection of our spiritual, perfected bodies. The resurrection of Lazarus is a sign. It's the last sign before Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem and heads to his passion. It's a promise of what's coming. The empty tomb of Lazarus is a foreshadowing of the empty tomb of Christ. while the resurrection of Lazarus leads to this ridiculous scene of a man jumping out of his own tomb. The resurrection of Christ leads to the glorious image of the face cloth folded and left on the stone, of the strips there, of the stone that was rolled away, and of a glorious, perfected body that still carries the scars of our sin. What do suffering and dying people mean? We need a Savior who's both loving and sovereign. 
We need a Savior who will speak truth to us. We also need a Savior who weeps with us. And we need a Savior who provides resurrection and not just consolation. Because if Jesus just wept and didn't end that story with saying, Lazarus, come out, it wouldn't be a sign of who he is. We need a Savior who provides resurrection, not just consolation. He will restore all things better than before. He will make all things new. Jesus both weeps with you in your grief and promises to raise you from your sleep. And then all crying will stop. And we will praise him with lungs that will never fail us. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the good shepherd. Do you believe this? Do you believe Our hymn of invitation this morning is hymn number 294, Have Thine Own Way, Lord, 294.